This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals. The information presented is for general educational purposes only and should not be used as professional medical advice or for the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions. The views and opinions expressed do not represent the views and opinions of our employer or any affiliated institution. Expressed opinions are based on scientific facts under certain conditions and subject to certain assumptions and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to the diagnosis or treatment of medical conditions or in any legal proceeding. Full terms and conditions can be found at portablebeads.com. And now onto the episode. Welcome back to Portable Beats, the Pediatric Board Review Podcast. This is actually going to be our last episode of the Newborn Medicine Month. We had four episodes prior to this where we talked about both indirect and direct hyperbilirubinemia. We talked about necrotizing enterocolitis or neck, and we last week talked about respiratory distress of the newborn. So this is going to be a review episode where we hit the high yield points from those episodes and kind of succinctly summarize all that for you. If you don't like hearing it in a case-based format and want to just hear the high yield points, that's really what this episode's all about. And then next month, we're actually going to go on to metabolic disorders, talking about glycogen storage disorders, lysosomal storage disorders, and then some of our more amino acid-related metabolic disorders as well, such as uh, maple syrup urine disease, PKU, galactosemia, things like that. But let's just jump right into it today. So Liz, you want to take over? Sure. So for week one, we talked about neonatal jaundice. Remember that over 60% of healthy newborns will develop jaundice. And the AAP recommends that any infant discharged at 24 hours of life or younger should be seen by their PCP by 72 hours of life. Some major risk factors for the development of severe hyperbilirubinemia to keep in mind include jaundice in the first 24 hours of life, blood group incompatibility with a positive direct Coombs test, prematurity, previous siblings who required phototherapy, cephalohematomas or other bruising, exclusively breastfed infants, and infants of East Asian descent. One final point is that any jaundice that lasts longer than two weeks cannot be considered physiologic and requires further investigation. Now, when you think about a differential, the first question you need to ask yourself is whether or not it is direct or indirect hyperbilirubinemia. Let's go ahead and break each one down. We're going to go ahead and talk about indirect hyperbilirubinemia first. The first thing on your differential to consider is breastfeeding jaundice. This develops between day of life two to four peaks between day of life four to five, and resolves by two weeks of life. Breastfeeding jaundice is mainly caused by inadequate milk intake as you're waiting for mom's milk to come in. Another item on your differential is breast milk jaundice, which develops later in life. It peaks on day of life five to 15, and it can take up to 12 weeks to resolve. In contrast to breastfeeding jaundice, these infants are usually well-appearing and have good weight gain. ABO incompatibility should also be considered. You should think about this in infants who are born to mothers whose blood type is O. The last item on your list is G6BD deficiency. This is an X-linked recessive genetic condition that is most common in males of African, Asian, Middle Eastern, and Mediterranean descent. In the United States, this will most commonly be seen in African-American males. G6BD deficiency increases the vulnerability of erythrocytes to oxidative stress, leading to a hemolytic reaction. Now, what about direct hyperbilirubinemia? Yeah, so... Direct hyperbilirubinemia, we talked about that in our first episode, and we have some of the differentials that we're going to talk about in a sec, but this is also known as neonatal cholestasis. Any infant with a direct bilirubin greater than one milligram per deciliter should be referred for further evaluation. 
Now let's talk about the differential. So as far as our differential, the first thing we're going to talk about is biliary atresia. This is the most common cause of neonatal cholestasis. It typically presents between three to six weeks of age with jaundice and pasty white, aka a colic stools. Diagnosis is via liver biopsy, which demonstrates large duct obstruction, portal tract edema, bile ductular proliferation, and the presence of bile plugs in the bile ductules. Treatment involves a Kasai procedure, which allows bile to drain into the intestine, and a liver transplant is often necessary even with the Kasai procedure. The next thing on our differential is cholidocal cysts. These are cystic dilatations of the bile duct, which lead to obstruction and bile retention, which in turn leads to jaundice and liver enlargement. There are actually five different types based on the site of the cyst or dilation, and they can be identified on ultrasound and the treatment is surgical. Our next differential is allergeal syndrome, which is an autosomal dominant disorder with variable penetrance and expressivity. These patients present with jaundice, acolic stools, but the thing that separates them from our previous differentials is they also have dysmorphic facies, including a prominent broad forehead, deep set eyes, and a triangular chin. They also tend to have congenital heart disease, specifically pulmonary stenosis is the one to think of. They also have short stature, hypogonadism, and abnormalities of the kidneys, and abnormalities of the vertebra, specifically known as butterfly vertebra. Our last thing to talk about is galactosemia. This is an inborn error of metabolism leading to direct hyperbilirubinemia as well. These patients are often ill-appearing and are slow to gain weight. Galactosemia is due to a deficiency of the enzyme galactose-1-phosphate uridyl transferase, leading to the accumulation of galactose and galactose-1-phosphate. Galactosemia is treated with lifelong restriction of galactose, and in infancy, the initiation of soy-based or elemental formulas. So now let's review from week two, when we talked about necrotizing enterocolitis, or commonly known as NEC. Some of the high points that we discussed include infants and how they present, which is common with poor feeding tolerance, increasing gastric residuals, increasing abdominal distension, and bloody bowel movements. The main risk factors include prematurity, low birth weight, and formula feedings. Other risk factors include packed red blood cell transfusions, a PDA or other congenital heart disease, birth asphyxia or hypoxia, intrauterine growth restriction, polycythemia, chorioamnionitis, premature rupture of membranes, maternal cocaine use, chromosomal abnormalities, sepsis, gastroschisis, hypothyroidism, maternal preeclampsia, and maternal gestational diabetes. Studies have demonstrated that feeding with maternal breast milk or donor human milk is protective against the development of neck. The pathognomonic finding on abdominal x-ray is pneumatosis intestinalis, which has been described as a bubbly appearance throughout the bowel. Pneumatosis intestinalis results from intramural gas generated from anaerobic bacteria becoming trapped in the submucosal layer of the bowel wall. Serial abdominal x-rays are the current gold standard to evaluate for disease progression. Treatment includes making the infant MPO, so not letting them eat anything by mouth, placing a gastric tube for decompression, and treating with empiric antibiotics for 7 to 14 days while providing nutrition via TPN, or total parental nutrition. A surgical consult is also appropriate, as approximately 30% of these infants will unfortunately progress to surgical disease. Complications include intestinal perforation, intestinal stricture formation, intestinal malabsorption and short bowel syndrome, as well as cholestatic liver disease and neurodevelopmental delay. So for our last topic, we are going to talk about respiratory distress of the newborn, which was our episode from last week. So if you listened to last week's episode, we're going to do it in a little bit different order than we talked about in the previous episode to kind of go chronologically through the stages of lung development and then talk about the way that some of these pulmonary processes would develop throughout developmental 
uh, gestational age and kind of go in that order rather than the answer choice order from previously. So first, let's talk about the stages of lung development. So the first stage of lung development is the embryonic stage. This takes place over the first six weeks of development, during which the trachea and the main bronchi are formed. If this stage has any defective growth, infants can develop uh, TEF, or tracheoesophageal fistulas, or pulmonary sequestration. Immediately after that, from weeks 7 to 16, uh, there's the pseudoglandular stage. This is where the bronchioles, terminal bronchioles, and lung circulation develop. So this is where infants can develop defects such as bronchogenic cysts, congenital diaphragmatic hernias, which was one of the answer choices from the previous week's question, um, and then congenital cystic adenomatoid malformations. Now, the third stage is really when uh, infants start getting more terminal, minute details in their lung development. This is the canalicular stage. This is where you get the respiratory bronchioles and the primitive alveoli. If these grow incorrectly, infants can get pulmonary hypoplasia, RDS, BPD, and alveolar capillary dysplasia. So the fourth stage, or the terminal sac stage, this lasts from weeks 25 to 36, when most people kind of start considering the fetus to be viable. Um, during this stage, they develop alveolar ducts, thin-walled alveolar sacs, and kind of increasingly throughout this stage, from week 25 all the way through 36, they increasingly gain function in their type 2 pneumocytes, which we talked about last week being the cells that specifically produce surfactant in the lungs. And so the surfactant is important to maintain surface tension so they don't collapse and cause atelectasis. So if kids are born during this stage, especially the earlier they are, they're more prone to getting RDS, um, along with bronchopulmonary dysplasia, which is now called chronic lung disease rather than BPD. Now, the fifth and final stage is the alveolar stage, and this basically goes from week 37 until term gestation and beyond. So this is when the lungs develop definitive alveoli and mature type 2 pneumocytes, and infants born during this stage are more at risk for, like, TTN or transient tachypnea of the newborn, uh, meconium aspiration syndrome, neonatal pneumonia, and persistent pulmonary hypertension, which we didn't talk about last week. So... We're going to first talk about some of the things that occur early on. So the, the earliest defect that is prone to happen is congenital diaphragmatic hernia, or also known as CDH. So this is due to a defect in the diaphragm, so the abdominal organs migrate up into the chest cavity, and because of that, you get pulmonary hypoplasia on the affected side or sides. Like we talked about last week, the majority are left-sided. Sometimes it's right-sided, and even less frequently, it can be bilateral, um, that you have this diaphragmatic defect. And then finally, like we talked about last week, this can occur as a solitary defect, or it can occur with other congenital abnormalities, such as trisomies 18 and 21. So kind of later in the lung development stage, you're more prone to getting RDS. Again, this is kind of in that 25 to 36 week age, especially the younger you are. So RDS, or respiratory distress syndrome, is specifically about alveolar surfactant deficiency. So for these kids, the risk factors include prematurity, like we've already talked about multiple times already, gestational diabetes, because the insulinemia actually delays fetal lung development from maternal diabetes, multiple gestation, and male infants. Like we talked about last week, if you administer corticosteroids at least 48 hours prior to delivery, typically two doses of betamethasone, this can be shown to stimulate surfactant production and decrease the rate of RDS in premature infants. And like we talked about, the reason this develops is because they're born premature, they have less mature type 2 pneumocytes, they get less surfactant, this causes microatelectasis and low lung volumes throughout. So on a chest x-ray, it'll typically present as diffuse bilateral ground glass opacities with air bronchograms. 
So next we'll talk about transient tachypnea of the newborn. So this tends to occur more often in neonates who do not undergo labor, so either precipitous labor or scheduled C-sections. Other risk factors for these kids include gestational age less than 39 weeks, fetal distress, maternal sedation, and maternal diabetes. Diabetes for the same reason we just talked about. Also for these kids, this tends to be a self-limited illness, and oftentimes it doesn't require any mechanical ventilation. They just get better. Um, However, again, antenatal corticosteroid use at least 48 hours prior to C-section can help decrease respiratory morbidity in these kiddos. So next we'll talk about meconium aspiration syndrome. This typically presents on a chest x-ray as diffuse patchy infiltrates with areas of hyperinflation. And this is because whenever they swallow the meconium and aspirate it, it causes both a chemical pneumonitis as well as a partial obstruction. And that partial obstruction leads to air trapping and hyperaeration. So those areas of hyperinflation is from that partial obstruction. Now, the reason that you also get chemical pneumonitis is part of the meconium constituents and components. And the other components of it that are involved as well is bile acids. And these bile acids locally inactivate pulmonary surfactant, and this causes atelectasis, hence the patchy infiltrates throughout. Now, because of the way that meconium is made, it's typically not in the descending colon until at least 34 weeks of gestation. Therefore, it takes some time for that to transit through the colon and get to a place where they can even poop it out to be aspirated. So it's very uncommon to see MAS prior to 37 weeks gestation. It can happen. It's just very infrequent. And the risk factors for meconium aspiration syndrome include meconium stand amniotic fluids, post-term gestation, so typically over 40 weeks of gestation, like a 42-week infant, And this is because it causes fetal stress to be post-term, and fetal stress is a risk factor to have meconium stand amniotic fluids, and then also having an African-American ethnicity is also a risk factor. So now we're going to talk about our final disorder, which is neonatal pneumonia. Neonatal pneumonia can be broken down into perinatal versus congenital pneumonia. Perinatal pneumonia is the most common cause of neonatal pneumonia, and the most common organism that causes that is group B strep. Congenital pneumonia, however, can be passed transplacentally from the mother and is caused by a bunch of different viruses along with toxo, syphilis, TB, and listeria. And the risk factors for developing this infection includes prolonged rupture of membranes, maternal infection, and prematurity. Now on chest x-ray, this will typically present like a pneumonia, so you'll have diffuse parenchymal infiltrates with air bronchograms, or you can have lobar consolidation like you would classically think for a pneumonia on a chest x-ray. This infectious process also often presents as part of a generalized sepsis, so this will often need blood and CSF cultures along with empiric antibiotics. There's a great calculator that'll be throughout the week mentioned on our Twitter. If you go to the Kaiser Permanente Early Onset Sepsis Calculator, there's a great calculator there as long as they're at least 34 weeks gestation, where it walks through a bunch of different risk factors for sepsis, such as gestational age, maternal temp, rupture of membrane duration, maternal GBS status, and the use of intrapartum antibiotics. And basically, the higher the risk factors of things, the more it will strongly recommend that you consider getting blood cultures and starting empiric antibiotics. Well, that's going to do it for this week's review episode. I know it's a little longer than our standard cases, but we're reviewing four episodes worth of content, so it's bound to be a little bit longer. If you like our content, be sure to subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice so you don't miss any new episodes. Just like we talked about at the start of the episode, next month we are starting our month on metabolic disorders. Our first week's episode is going to be on glycogen storage disorders, followed by lysosomal storage disorders, and then ending on amino acidopathies. If you like our content and you want to learn more, our website, portablepeds.com, has a written format of all the things we talk about if you prefer reading over listening. 
Also, if you want to review and kind of reinforce this material, be sure to follow us on social media. We have a Facebook and a Twitter at PortablePeds for both of those. On our Twitter, like after the episode releases on a Saturday, throughout that week on Monday through Friday, we talk about all of the answer choices and kind of do a brief, limited review of the high-yield points that you need to know about those answer choices. And on Facebook, we actually do a delayed review. So if you want to follow it actively on Twitter, that'll get you the week-by-week of the active episodes that are coming out. But Facebook is going to do a delayed one. So if you are just now getting into the game, we're going to actually start back at the beginning of next month, talking about our month one stuff to have a delayed review for you going forward. So that's what you can look forward to on our social media and our website. But for now, we're signing off and we'll see you next week. Happy studying. In contrast to bet. In contrast to bet. <laughs> Think of a wonderful thought. La 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 la. <laughs> <laughs>